0: Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today S.K. Baskerville. He is a professor at the Collegium Intimarium in Warsaw. He is also the author of many things, including The New Politics of Sex. He has a new book out entitled A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex, and Ruling the World, our topic today. Welcome, Professor Baskerville.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: I should add, you, you have a long subtitle here, How to Survive as a Man in an Age of Misandry, and do so with grace. We, we all need that. I want my son to, to take a look at this book and, and acquire some grace, because I'm not sure the Internet is going to do it for him, or the video games. What, what, do, you, what do you say, Professor Baskerville?
1: Well, that's very true, actually, yes. There's a lot of similar <laughs> books on, on the Internet. Uh, well, in fact, it's a very old genre, so it goes back to the Renaissance and even beyond of, you know, advice books for men and for gentlemen. And they continue to pour off the presses today and there's and there's many versions on the internet. So you're right. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical. Mine are, in some ways, my version is uh, in many ways somewhat traditional. Uh, I think many of the old rules are, are tried and true, but I also felt like they needed to be reformulated for the world today, for today's man. Not, not that we need new rules, not that we need to, you know, adopt all the latest fads and trends, far from it. Um, but that we need, the, the old rules needed to be recast, re, restated in, in a different way today, uh, because the threats to manhood and to uh, a gentleman's status are different today than what they used to be.
0: Are you open, actually, with, with that point. You say, being a man is not easy nowadays. And you mean it's not harder physically, but you say right. it's different. Uh, harder Harder in a different way. How so?
1: Well, it's always, I argue that, and I'm not the first, that being a man is always something that has to be proven. Uh, Manhood is is, is not something you just assume. It's something a man has to have. If you feel a deficit of it, he's got to get more of it. But in the past, the main threat to one's manhood was um, the next guy's manhood you know, the bully on the block or the rival in love. Yep. But today the threat, the threat to masculinity doesn't come from other men primarily. It comes from the culture, including the political culture, and from radical political ideologies like feminism and, and transgenderism and so forth. So really what, what needed to be talked about is that masculinity itself, and especially the, the gentlemanly ideal, which I can go into, um, needs to be defended and formulated uh, in, in a way that men today can hear.
0: You you say that, uh, you know we don't we we may not have the bully, down the block so much or or the rival, who can frighten, a young man in in one way or another, but still that there is now a general fear. You say men are afraid, of being manly, itself.
1: How so? Right, right. Well, we talk about toxic masculinity, and yet. It's well known that if you ask most people, including most women, they expect men to be to be manly. Uh, women want men to be masculine. Um, society needs men to be masculine. Um, so there's no question that, you know, th- this this talk about toxic masculinity is in many ways superficial. And yet it, it's managed to cow all of us. It's managed to we have to treat it defensively, the idea that, that a man should be a man uh, and that he should be a gentleman. Um, so it's it's. Uh, you know, we need to we need to push through this this fear. We need to get past this fear and this diffidence and simply stay. What we all know uh, is a necessity.
0: When feminists use the term toxic masculinity, what do you think they mean by that?
1: I think they I think they're trying to intimidate men from being men. I mean, they're trying to, to androgenize society. They want to, um, and, and they're also uh, denigrating uh, femininity as well. Um, the the um, Blurring the distinction between the sexes is not in anyone's interest, in my opinion. It's certainly not in the interest of men. And uh, I I go through the book. In the book, I do discuss places, the the many ways in which our society um, is is at pains to differentiate men from women. You know, a thousand different ways, whether it's the language or whether it's dress or appearance or, you know, you name it there's there's many ways we differentiate these things and we uh, it's inevitable every society does it
0: so when they say talks of masculinity they're not just talking about you know men who 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 grope women in the hallway men who men who just act boorish and and coarse uh, around women just to just to offend them in some way it goes way beyond that in their eyes
1: oh absolutely absolutely it does i think there's of course feminists have uh, um and other sexual um, you know libertarians have uh first of all well, they've encouraged um boorish behavior on the part of both men and women in many ways now that's what the sexual revolution has, has permitted to all of us so um no it's, it's a, there's an attempt to 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 take the, uh, the boorish behavior of some men and to to make this uh the grounds for uh, you know destroying masculinity altogether yeah. and and femininity for And um, most people aren't having it, but we haven't. What we're having is difficulty articulating why, and that's what I try to do in the book. Next question: How do most
0: contemporary advice manuals prescribe how to be a strong and good man?
1: Well, that's that's a good question. I find some deficiency in in a number of them. Some have accepted the politically correct. you know, version of kind of a, you know a watered down mask. I criticize a few of those in the book, um, and then there's also some that seem to, um, as Aaron Wren at the Masculinist writes, um, interesting site. Um, there's there's also a tendency to um, turn men into sacrificial lambs. Uh, in other words, to to encourage men to be um, you know, self-sacrificing, which is certainly part of the ideal, and always has been. That's a very good ideal, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But to be self-sacrificing without being strong uh, on top of it—the idea that you know, instead of being battlefield champions, we're kind of sacrificial lambs—and um, I, I think men have to be both. Um, you can't, you can't have, you can't pick and choose. You can't cherry pick the the, the ideals of masculinity that that comport with today's uh you know politically correct sensibilities you kind of have to take the whole package or it doesn't work and um that's my problem today with a lot of these uh these manuals is that they are very politically correct they want to make men more like women um and even those that don't sometimes i think seem to pull their punches just a little bit and not really um not really stand up for a strong and and you know traditional masculinity
0: uh, on that strength issue, you talk a lot about uh, men understanding themselves as leaders of some kind. Mm-hmm. Do you see the the leadership factor really diminishing?
1: Well, it's, yes, and it's very important because it's an essential part of it. Uh, yes, this is the... Um, this is what's not really well understood about the, the whole gentlemanly ideal as it goes back to centuries. It's not just a matter of, you know, table manners and, and, and social graces and, and being elegant and, you know, pouring a martini and so forth. It's, it's, it's really was, it goes back to a, an ethic of rule, of government, of self-government, first of all, but by extension of governing the society. It's really a, the, the ideal of the gentleman, uh, going back to the Renaissance, um, is very much uh, started as an ethic for statesmen, for rulers, mm-hmm. for those of the ruling class. If you look at, um, well, the most famous, and out of Italy, were Machiavelli's Prince, which is, of course, not typical, but you know, an extreme example. But uh, Castiglione's The Courtier was it was a book for uh, you know those of the ruling class of Italy, mm-hmm. and then that was imported into England by, by uh, most famously, by Thomas Eliot, who was writing in the time of Henry VIII. And he wrote a book called The Complete Gentleman, and it was intended for statesmen. Um, sorry, his book, his book was called The Governor. The Governor is the book of the governor. And um, the title, of the, the very title of it, indicates uh, that it was really a book for, for statesmen, for men who uh, would be in the, assisting the king with governing the, the, the realm. And then later on, the, the, um, the ideal of the gentleman was associated with the gentry class and the gentry class uh, in the 16th and especially the 17th and 18th centuries was a class that really ruled. And this was, you know, these were the ethics. This was the ethic that they, they learned to do it. And much of that ethic was imported to America, um, both in places like Virginia, for example, by the, the second sons of the of the English gentry and to some extent in, in to new England as well. Also uh, popularized the ideal, uh, for, um, for other classes than just the gentry. So, uh, it's always been an idea inseparable from the idea of gentleman and the idea of of ruling ruling the side not just, not necessarily becoming a politician and running the government and running the state yeah but ruling whatever domain God has given you you know within your you know within your sphere within your uh with the domain that He's He's allotted to you in your life yeah yeah
0: you spend time talking about uh, the proper attire. Of a gentleman, I I I sit in the airport, and I see I see thirty five year old men wearing cargo shorts and flip flops and T shirts and baseball caps. Uh, I gather that doesn't quite fit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, and, and then there's the other extreme. Actually, if you go on the internet, you find sites that are dedicated to to gentlemen, uh, which are actually nothing but. But, uh, you know um, discussions about how to dress, and that, I think is the other extreme which I, I don't go to either. But um, yes, it's always been a part of it. It's always been part of the ideal, um, dressing properly, having the proper uh, personal grooming and, and comportment and cleanliness and so forth. That's, um, it's always been a little defensive, People think. Uh, even even Chesterfield, um, Lord Chesterfield had to say, these things are not as, as trivial as you might think they are. Yeah. when he was writing to his son in the 18th century. Um, but it's always a part of it. Uh, yes, we dress, um, we dress in ways that are to show, um, uh, well, it's often said that we dress in ways to, to show respect to others. And that's true, although I prefer to say it differently. I prefer to say that we dress in a way that attempts to please others. And that yeah. we, which we show people that the, the default position we take toward them is that we want to please them. Um, we might decide differently later on. Well, we get to know them better, but but you know, as a, as the default position for, toward the world, we, we want to make people uh, to please people by the by the way we look. The other thing that I mentioned in this that I've not seen really developed is that the more um, the more formal we dress, the more sex specific our attire is. In other words, the hmm. more informal we are, first of all, it blurs the distinction between men and women. It also blurs the distinction between adults and children. As you were pointing out, um, you know, uh, very, very informal clothing is inseparable between a, a man and a, and a boy. It's the same thing. And it's also inseparable between men and women in many ways. So um, I argue that um, sex-specific clothing is, uh, and more formal clothing is, is, helps to differentiate the sexes. And that's always in all of our interests, and it's certainly in the interest of men.
0: You know what you just said. I think explains why so many middle-aged men dress like teenagers, because they they don't want to be middle-aged men. They they like the idea of being a teenager. They had a good time when they were teenagers, when they were when they were in college. Why not keep dressing uh, this way? I, I I think that, I think that explains something. Well, what, <laughs> what you just well, said.
1: Well, there is an element of that. I mean, we do we don't. Uh, one of the things we've lost in our society today is. The, is the rites of passage by right. which, you know a boy becomes a man. I, I was going to ask you, us, yeah,
0: uh, I was actually going to ask you about it. You, you talk about rites of passage that actually facilitate the assumption of manhood that used to exist. Can you give us uh, an example or two of, of an important rite of passage that we seem to have lost?
1: I do mention, yes, yeah, some of them, for example, um, you know, at one time, um, well, certain, certain religious rituals, of course, like, the, you know, the First Communion, the Bar Mitzvah, Things like that are, are certainly, um, uh, you know, rites of passage to manhood. Um, at one time, the university education was um, because you know, university education was uh, first of all, it was, you likely went to a university of one one sex or the other, all male university. Um, it was uh, attempt. It was a, a different form of education than than uh, than a secondary school, and you were expected to you know to learn from 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 scholars. And so um you know that's kind of been obliterated university it's, a, it's not much different we treat it nowadays just like a, an extension of high school of, of secondary school yeah. and um, so I think that's uh, you know again we you know we, we don't have these specific points where we're expected to put on a coat and a tie and um, and uh, you know dress like a man look like a man act like a man so um, I think these things need to be um, you know we need to we need to uh, to to self-consciously, uh, adopt these things, even if nobody comes along and tells us, you know, now it's time to do it.
0: Yeah. You mentioned another thing, apart from the art of dress, and that is the art of conversation, that a gentleman knows how to converse in the right way. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does, how does a, a young man, or how, to, how does a parent teach a young man the, the proper art of conversation?
1: Yeah, it's difficult. We, we have, um, uh, again, a, lo- a lot of this book with things I had to kind of teach myself and realize that I, I wasn't doing properly either. Um, because obviously, you know, you you, you learn to, to, to speak to people in a way that's um, equal. Um, one of the things I, I spend some time at is, is um, complaining about uh, specialized jargon, whether it's highbrow or lowbrow, whether it's the slang of the street or the or the um, you know the jargon of a of a business or profession or a university or something like that. Um, the idea that we, we we speak in a way that's, that's accessible to everyone, that everyone can understand, yeah. and don't adopt specialized jargon that that excludes some people and, and marks marks us off, whether we realize it or not. It marks us off as the kind of cognoscenti, um, uh, and this is uh, this is obviously unacceptable. I know that um you know. Uh, the, the ability to raise subjects of interest, to show an interest in other people is is important. Don't make the first question you ask somebody, what do you do? In other words, how do you earn your money? Yeah, um, Which is, uh, I, I think, I, and others have said this, uh, um, an improper way to, to start a conversation. Um, I know a lot of gentlemen, um, even the traditional English gentlemen can be themselves kind of misanthropic, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing to <laughs> To be reserved, to be reserved, and to you know, is has always been um, an element of gentlemanly behavior. To be self-effacing and and and, and uh, understand the art of of understatement mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. is important. Um, and these are all things we've um, you know we don't have so much these days. We get, we tend to overstate everything. Everything tends to be awesome, everything's super and you know tremendous oh. um, rather. Rather than, you know, understating things rather than overstating things. So, right, right. Um, you know, these are some of the things which I've, I've observed and tried to correct.
0: Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You have a, a section on vulgarity and I mean, there's so much profanity out on the street and in, in, in youth world these days. Right. Have we have we just lost that battle completely?
1: Well, sometimes it seems like yes. Even in everyday conversation, we have colloquialisms now which are, are very um, actually have vulgar origins. Um, and um, I, argue, I don't argue against it completely because I argue that it's the nuclear option. And that if you're going to use vulgarity, you better first have a reputation for never. For being proper in every respect and to save it as, as the as the you know for, for when it's something when you really want to, the only point of vulgarity is to shock people okay and if you if you need to shock people then save it save it for a time when you when it's really important to shock people yeah because if you use it all the time like a narcotic it, it loses the effect there's no point anymore and um you know this is what we see in videos and popular culture there's the, the shock effect wears off um so what's the point i'm
0: i'm astonished At not not so much the frequency of the F word uh, everywhere these days, but Mm -hmm. what it signals to me is the poverty of expression. People don't have other words to express what the F word expresses all the time. You know, so many different ways for them it's an intensifier it's it's an expression of disdain if it's or if it's expression of praise it can be all different kinds of things and when one word uh, plays so many different functions that's not a good thing you need a bigger vocabulary than that
1: (laughs) precisely precisely and it it doesn't even serve the original purpose which of course was to uh was to shock again if you go back to woodstock or something you know, the using that word in a, in front, on a stage with a loudspeaker, and even in 1969, it could shock people. Yeah. But it doesn't anymore. So, yeah. so what's the point of doing it anymore? Uh, you know, like you say, you uh, have very rich language. Why not use it? And um, I do argue, in, in, you know, for for especially in the art of writing, to, to you know, to to for gentlemen to expand his vocabulary as possible, try try and use words that are rich rather than than cliches and. I mean, we all speak in colloquial ways, and we all use words in in speaking that we would um, less elegant than we would use, for example, in writing. That's one of the reasons why Bacon said that you know I forget how he said, said it exactly, but he said that you know reading, writing, and reading uh, and writing um, develop a man's you know a man's education, and I think that's the reason for it.
0: Uh, you, you actually talk about the importance of public speaking. Uh, should should a young man actually seek out uh moments to engage in some in some public speaking
1: oh absolutely yes it's a great it's a great art to be able to do and it's um it's not easy you know again if you go, it's one of the classical you know, rhetoric is one of the classical um parts of, of, of the of the what the, the trivium uh of, of the greeks um because after, after all in the days of the greeks and the romans public speaking was the only way to contribute to the to the republican and, and democratic uh culture is the only way to be to make a difference. You couldn't, you know, there was no printing press, there was no media. Um, public speaking was the way of contributing. If you believed in a, a democracy or a republic, um, public speaking was the only way to contribute to it. So somebody once observed, a political theorist once observed that the, um, the, the standard discourse for monarchies is whispering. The courts of kings people communicate by whispering, hmm. but in democratic assemblies they, they communicate by, by public speaking. So it's hmm. very much a part of our our civic culture, and, um, you know, throughout the ages, uh, public speaking, the, the speeches of the Renaissance, the sermons of the Reformation, um, for better or for worse, the you know, the the speech of the radical, speeches of the French and Russian revolutions. Yeah, um, yeah. We're also, you know, changed history. So again, for better or for worse. Um, and it's, you uh, know, it's very important to be able to, uh, to do that, and it helps in writing also.
0: And, and I would emphasize for listeners who may be parents, and younger listeners as well, that public speaking is something you, you've got to get out there and do it. And you have to accept that your first efforts are, are going to be often pretty bad. I mean, I've done a lot of interviews and, and radio and whatnot, and boy, the first ones, I was, I was terrible, you know, But by, by mm. the... By the twentieth or the thirtieth, you start, you get better at it, and and you get, and it's just practice. It, it, it is practice. So, but but so many young people, they really are scared to stand up in front of a group and articulate, and I'm I'm afraid that that, you know that 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 defeats your capacity to do it better next time. Uh, so,
1: uh. yes, very much so. No, it, it is something that takes practice. I've discovered this too on radio interviews and television interviews um uh yeah it's something that takes a certain presence of mind and um you know respect for the language and so forth so it's um it, it is very important
0: as one develops one's gentlemanly character you you suggest that there may be some particular vices that might tempt that person more than a person who who doesn't become a gentleman is that right
1: well, it's it's different. I mean, over the ages, gentlemen have been uh, have found ways to make to refine their vices, to make them seem <laughs> less, um, you know, less less vulgar. Um, yeah. Gentlemen are certainly not uh, are not immune from vices by any means. And uh, is is it a good idea to? To, to refine your vices I had I, before I read the book I had never really thought about gambling, something I'd never done before Yeah and I'd seen, I seen I had seen gambling in, in ways that made me very uh, I felt very sad about it like I had seen, you know, seen somebody a, a slot machine at three in the morning or something by themselves and I thought, oh this is a very sordid life. but then I realized that over the centuries um, you know gambling uh, for example, it, it may have had a, it, you know, developed in the gentlemen's clubs of the 18th century. And it may have had a role. In, you know, it, it did express things like risk-taking and courage, and being able to accept losses without, um, with, you know, while keeping your composure. That's right. And it may have had some. It may have had something to do with the, um, you know, the development of, of stock speculation, which of course the stock market and the and the ups and downs and financial speculation. So it may have contributed something quite, you know, in the long run good to society. It's hard to say, um, but um, it's something worth considering. Yeah. Um,
0: I... I, I worked at a racetrack for a few summers, uh, horse racing, you know, there all day, and you'd see the same people uh, day after day. And uh, I found that the best gamblers were the ones uh, who who didn't let it show whether they were winning or losing. They had a kind of level, level persona. Right, right. And
1: it's their composure and keep it under control, and of course, then it's, it, Better if you I mean if you if you're over your head um, of course gambling like alcohol like alcohol or anything else can be can be very debilitating and destructive yeah you talk
0: you you refer to a lot of activities uh, in in the book music what kind of uh, um, uh, what kind of music does a gentleman listen to
1: i didn't I didn't really go into that a huge amount I didn't get into the substance of things like that um, I said that a gentleman should patronize the arts, um, including music. Um, I did say that, um, uh, I, I did mention, you know, that he should know the history of classical music, of course, yeah. the major schools of, of that, that, that's in, what in the noticed. modern world.
0: That's what I noticed. when Yeah. I, th-
1: yeah. Things like that. Uh, I, I um, and things like, you know, of course, opera and ballet. These, these are things you should know. I, I I'm not, I, I enjoy jazz to a point. I, I didn't go into that, but you know, jazz has its roots in, in classical music as well, and uh, modern forms. I, d- I did come down rather hard on forms of um, uh, um, popular music, which are um, mix uh, rebellion with sexuality. And that this is something I found. Um, uh, this is one theme of the book: is that um, rebel- uh, both rebellion and sexuality kind of develop at the same age, you know, roughly in adolescence, mm-hmm. and uh, they are together when when they work together uh, in, in tandem. They're very, very destructive and they can do horrible damage on both the man and society. And some music, of course, much of modern music uh, pop pop music expresses this with you know lyrics and, and vis- images that are not only sexual, um, and vulgar, but highly rebellious, any form of art or, or, or expression that mixes that, that 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 explosive combination of sexuality and 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 rebellion. Of both both adolescent years uh is something that really needs to be guarded against
0: yeah i mean i'm Winton Marsalis the the jazz trumpeter although he's he's done some classical as well he 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 referred to pop music as a dialogue of adolescent passions, which sounds right mm. to to me, but it 's something to yeah. outgrow you know it 's time you're twenty five you don't want to have the same musical taste that you had when you were seventeen you haven 't grown, my goodness, sir well,
1: <laughs> well, that's that's a very good point. I didn't go into that so much, but I, yeah. Yeah. I think it, I, I. I was a part of the generation that grew up in the '60s, uh, you know, when pop music was really coming in, and I'm I'm quite shocked now in my '60s how many people of my age generation are still listening to the same music that they were listening to in, uh, you know, the '60s and '70s and the Woodstock and haven't haven't grown out of this. And this is I find this a little sad
0: actually. It is. It is. Uh... So, uh, what about uh, how essential is religion, is worship, to a gentleman's life?
1: The short answer is very essential. Um, over the centuries, uh, the two have been in- inextricable. I mean, the, from the development of the, I mean, if you trace the gentlemanly code back to the Middle Ages and back to the codes of knighthood, obviously uh, Christian faith was inseparable from it. And over the years, uh, over the centuries, um, uh the, the development of the of the gentlemanly code uh also was very strong strongly influenced by Christian faith. Uh, not, I, I admit uh, that's true. They, there have been elements of paganism and other elements in the gentlemanly code. But but um I, I emphasize for example the role of the Puritans. The Puritans did a lot to popularize uh gentlemanly behavior because what they did was they, they challenged the traditional forms of honor. Honor was tr- – many gentlemen in the 17th century, for example, attempted to measure their honor in terms of things like um, you know, their wealth, their income, their military prowess, their sexual conquest, the size of their houses, the, um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and the Puritans uh, insisted that there was another code of conduct, uh, another measure of honor. And that was, of course, the honor, you know, you you get honored, you derive honor from the honor of God, you give honor to God, and you derive honor from that, from him. And um, that had a huge role in popularizing uh, the the concept. And I think the the Germans did a lot because they they were also the ones responsible for bringing that concept uh, to North America. Hmm. Um, So, uh, but it, it goes back even then, I mean, I skipped over the Renaissance, that also was a big Obviously, the court. You know, you know, again, Castiglione's ideal of the courtier. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, very strongly influenced by religion, yeah. and um, even, even Machiavelli. And this is very strange. I, I'm going out of limb here. I won't. I won't go into detail. But you know, you, even the kind of archetypal Machiavelli's prince is not a hundred. I mean, he was known as an atheist, and I'm, perhaps he was. But um, you know, in some ways, it, it, it's is consistent with some forms of of Christian faith, um, the idea that, you know, that we are fallen, and that we live in a world where sometimes, um, you know, ugly things happen, no. uh, and and that's, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, so it's it's, a, it's, a, it's an old ideal, and uh, yes, a gentleman is, is very much, uh, the ideal is, is very, very strongly connected to religion in, in many forms.
0: The book is A Gentleman's Guide to Manners, Sex, and Ruling the World. Professor Baskerville, thank you for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.